The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under luck. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Zohar Lederman. Zohar, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm Zohar. I, I'm an emergency medicine physician uh, trained in Israel and in Italy. Uh, and right now I am a researcher at the Medical Ethics and Humanities Unit at the Medical Faculty at uh, Hong Kong University. Thank you. And we know that, you know, one of your areas of expertise um, is loneliness. This is something that, you know, you've thought and written a lot about. And so that's what our conversation is going to be about. Before we um, get to that and the bioethical side of it, which is deeply interesting to me, let's talk a little bit, as we always do, about the, the Dickinson poem that, you know, we heard um, at the beginning of our broadcast. How does it strike you? What do you make of it? Can you relate? Yes, definitely. So I, uh, some, I know some guests of your talk have previously talked about it, um, but what struck me the most about the poem is the last bit, right? Um, so dealing with loneliness that is where folks are actually aware they are lonely is one thing, uh, and that's already a challenge. But I think the more we learn about loneliness, the more we realize that as researchers, as an individuals, that we oftentimes are lonely without being aware we are lonely. And from a public health perspective, from a clinical perspective, and from a normative perspective, that creates even larger challenges. Yeah, thank you. That's right. So so she very much, you know, Dickinson very much sort of plays with this, you know, loneliness as something that on the one hand, you might think it's something that dominates your consciousness, but then um, at the same time also somehow suppresses it. Right. So she's, you know, she's she's very much pursuing that idea that, you know, loneliness is something that you can experience or suffer from without being aware of it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Because, you know, you could think that that's paradoxical, right? You could think that, well, you know, it's in the nature of an experience that when you have it, then you know that you do, right? But if what you're saying is right, and which, you know, sort of a thing that, that Dickinson is also really interested in, then you can have this experience of loneliness without being aware of it. Tell us more about what that's like, what that is. Yeah, so I think, you know, human psyche is much more complex than that. Well, I think there are lots of emotions that we are not aware of, or it's sometimes hard for us to articulate. 
specifically in the case of loneliness, I think because it's such a fundamental or social relations is such a fundamental need of humans and loneliness is so common and so fundamental to our psyche uh, that sometimes humans can confuse other bad or negative emotions such as depression, a lack of meaning, right? So, you know, I suspect, and I cannot guarantee that or cannot prove that, but I suspect that a lot of what adolescents report, for instance, you know, feeling depressed, um, feeling that they have uh, lack of meaning of life, you know, and I can say that personally, I suspect that a lot of those cases are actually loneliness disguised as depression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the challenges, again, from a public health perspective and from a clinical and normative perspective is actually doing a better job at identifying those cases of loneliness rather than depression and other stuff because the interventions are potentially different. Interesting. Let's stick with that a little bit. Um, so, you know, before we get to the question, which I want to hear more from you about, because you're the person to talk to about that sort of thing, how we actually, how this works, how, how you know, we, you, you, you make a person um, aware that they're suffering from loneliness rather than depression. I want to hear what do you think is the, is the relation between the two? I mean, clearly, you know, they're not totally independent phenomena that just overlap a bit. Or do, or do you think that? Because um, often you might think that it's part of the depressed person experience that they also feel lonely and perhaps the other way around. So what's the relation here between these two kinds of conditions? I think there is definitely a correlation. I think loneliness is a risk factor for depression and vice versa. But I don't think the two are 100% correlated and there are different components to each other. So depression, you know, it, it's beyond the fact that depression is, or if we talk about clinical depression, has a very specific criteria, medical criteria, right? So uh, it's very likely, and I hope it does um, happen, that loneliness will also be included uh, in the classification of diseases as a disease, or at least as uh, illness, uh, the same way as depression, but I'm talking beyond that, right? From a philosophical perspective, the components that enter into each of those phenomena are different. And again, so I think there is an empirical correlation. I think there is a philosophical or, or theoretical correlation between them, uh, but they're not equal. Mm -hmm. What's, what are distinguishing factors that, you know, what makes them different? Uh, so that's that's exactly the big question, right? Uh, I think because we are vague about that, sometimes it's hard for us to distinguish for us as individuals and for us as researchers, as clinicians, psychologists, et cetera, et cetera, or mental health clinicians. So depression, you know, again, talking, I come from a medical background, so I immediately think about there are nine criteria. Uh, right in the DSM, and in order to be defined as clinically depressed, you need to fulfill five of them. You know, and so it's uh, how to be motivated. It's just feeling bad, being in a bad mood, and again, so I think when you are lonely, 
you often feel the same things. You know, again, it's hard to motivate. Uh, it makes you feel sad. And that may be because they are correlated. Again, so one causes uh, the other, so causally correlated. But I think someone can be happy in every aspect of their life, except having a partner, having an intimate partner, except of having social relations. You know, and, and other kinds of loneliness that I will mention, and vice versa, right? So someone can be, and we know a lot of cases, um, someone can be, for all purposes, not lonely, right? So someone can have a family, someone can have an intimate partner, and still be sad, still be depressed. Mm-hmm. So I think they are, they are again, they are, two are very similar, but they are uh, significant distinguishing factors. Yeah. How would you then prize that apart? So, you know, here's here's a person who who comes to you and, you know, they just report what's common to both of these conditions. How how do you how do you prize them apart so that you get to diagnose, you know, it's the one thing and not the other? So I think there are at least two answers to that. One is the more public health slash clinical answer which is you assess them as objectively as you can. So you use essays, you use screening uh, uh, tools that we have. So you have a tool for depression, you have a tool for loneliness, or you have several tools. So that is support, you know, so in clinical practice, uh, so for loneliness, for for instance, you have the UCLA, which is the most common, Uh, you know, that consists of 20 questions, in clinical practice, perhaps the most validated tool has three questions uh, out of those 20 questions. And that, I think that's, from a clinical perspective, uh, that's okay to use for physicians, and I encourage physicians to use it. And again, I would say more about the difficulties with that. Uh, and you have the same thing for depression. So you have different clinical tools to distinguish the two. The problem is, and I'm not talking about depression right now, there are difficulties with that, but uh, because there are, for instance, there is atypical depression uh, where where the person, um, it's not as clear that the person is depressed, but that's, uh, and and the problem is a lot of clinicians are not aware of that, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, The same goes for loneliness. I think one of the things that I think about or I'm concerned about is that our perception and treatment of loneliness is often too simplistic. And the tools that we have uh, don't correspond to the more, to the richer nature of loneliness and to different kinds of loneliness. I think they are too narrow. And again, I will say more about that. Mm-hmm. And so that's from a clinical perspective. I just think we don't have the right tools to screen for or identify loneliness and we need to develop them. Second, and perhaps more interesting, the philosophical um, difficulty of thinking about loneliness. And again, this goes back to right now, the concepts of loneliness or the the theoretical, theoretical definitions of loneliness, I think are overly simplistic and need to be further developed, uh, specific talking about the ethics of loneliness, 
you know, philosophers of mind have done a great work on loneliness, but I think we need to push it a bit further. And in turn, those philosophical developments will influence or hopefully will influence the sophistication or improve the tools that we have to actually assess loneliness. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's, of course, you know, what what we're all hoping to do, right? That, you know, we 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 become better at our thinking about this condition because, you know, as we'll, we'll know, um, contemporary philosophers until quite recently, weirdly, um, didn't think about it very much at all. You know, yes, there are historical, you know, big figures, Sartre and Arendt, you know, existentialists who thought about it. But then there was, with some few exceptions, you know, largely radio silence until a few years ago, despite, you know, this being such a big topic in public health and in psychology. And so, of course, you know, what we'd ideally like um, is, is, you know, more refined thinking about what that is that then also, you know, is practically useful. So that's not just philosophical, um, you know, armchair theorizing. But of course, this is really difficult, right? Um, so tell us from your perspective, you just mentioned, you know, the philosophical difficulties. And, you know, I know that you care particularly about the ethical aspect of it. What are some of these difficulties? And what are your ideas here? So a few things. Uh, so when I think about the ethics of loneliness, you know, when is, people ask me what I do, uh, and you asked me that when we first met. So the way I always define it is the same way as health. So health, the notion of health used to be uh, just a, a, you know, a descriptive notion, but it became a normative notion, right? So that means someone who is not healthy is supposed to be healthy. Is supposed to get better, and we, the society, other individuals, have an obligation to make one healthy. Okay, the same thing goes to loneliness. So you had a, a guest on your show uh, who said that loneliness is actually is always a bad thing, but it's not necessarily something we should do something about, right? And I think that's a grave, grave mistake, right? So the fact that loneliness, you know might make us stronger, more resilient. Uh, that's fine. That's probably true. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything about it. We, we shouldn't address it, right? And that's the meaning of the normative or looking or thinking about loneliness from a normative perspective. The kind of loneliness that we are concerned about, chronic or persistent loneliness, the kind that harms your health, first of all, and your well-being, and you know, maybe arguably goes against your very nature as a human being, is something that is deeply, deeply problematic, and something that we all ought and have responsibility to do something about, to to address. Right? Again, as a society, as clinicians, and as human fellow human beings, fellow members of a society. So. Once we agree that we need to do something about loneliness, then the next question is, okay, what should we do about it, right? And, you know, that's what public health people ask themselves. And that's what we should ask ourselves because everything that we do costs money, costs resources, and we need to be smart about it. Always when you talk about public health, about medicine, uh, we need to balance you know, sometimes you can call it cost effectiveness, but we need to be smart about, about our spending. And here comes 
the difficult part about loneliness. Loneliness is, as you know, the listeners are probably aware of by now, uh, loneliness has a very strict definition, uh, which is most common, right? So it's a, a sort of operational definition of a mismatch between the expectations of social relations that you have and what you perceive the social relations to be. And that creates a distress, right? What's interesting, and I wonder if you will agree with that, once you start reading about actual stories of people, reports or experiences of people reporting, talking about their own loneliness, you realize they are talking about very different kinds of loneliness, right? They are not talking about lack of social relations, of an intimate partner, of what have friends. No, they, you know, refugees are talking about um, lacking uh, the kind of social support when coming to a new country. And this might be when they come with their families, with their intimate partners to a new place, right? So this lack of, I call it lack of solidarity, right? They lack someone to stand with them. When you talk about, when you uh, read the experiences of people with disabilities, you realize their kind of loneliness is different, right? People with autism, they feel lonely because they cannot communicate with others. They try to say one thing, but they can't. They say something else or they are being heard as saying something else, right? When you read the experiences of someone with uh, hard of hearing, again, so that he lives or they live in a certain kind of loneliness, and the person who communicates with them may live in a certain or experience a kind, a specific kind of loneliness, right? There is even, so I, I work on uh, the Israeli occupation, there is a sense uh, you know, Palestinian refugees living abroad, they talk about loneliness being far away from their land, right? They use loneliness. So there are two ways to, to go about it. Either you dismiss their account of loneliness, you know, it can be a metaphor, or it can be, you know, what, what philosophers call the equivalency fallacy. And, you know, that's one method, but I think it's unfair towards them. And it, honestly, it's less academically interesting. The, the better way of thinking about of addressing it is understanding, acknowledging that there are other kinds of loneliness. In the literature, there is already accounts of political loneliness, ethical loneliness, and again, something that I would have been working on, uh, loneliness as lack of solidarity. And the tools that we have right now, because the philosophy has so far has been uh, pretty uh, narrow, they are, they are just not good enough to measure that kind of loneliness, mm -hmm. right? So UCLA does have some questions regarding, do you have uh, an, a social network, right? So partly relates to the kind of loneliness that we might think about when we talk about loneliness of refugees, but it's not wholly uh, sufficient. Yeah. Let me ask you at this, this juncture, so I've, I've in fact got two questions for you. Um, first question is, would you then say that, you know, this rather broad general definition that, you know, almost everybody in um, empirical work, you know, adopts. So, you know, some version of 
this discrepancy between what you think should be the case or feel should be the case and what you perceive to be the case as far as your social relationships go. Would you then say that that's sort of the broad umbrella description that's right as far as it goes, but then we need to sort of adapt it and plug it into, you know, all these various cases that you describe? Is that your model or is, is do you have a totally different idea? No. So if you would ask me uh, up until a month ago, two months ago, I would tell you, no, you have different kinds of loneliness. There are not subsets of loneliness. You have a whole different kinds, or you know, talking in a philosophical sense of a kind, different kinds of loneliness, right? So they are not subsets. So ethical loneliness, this is one thing. Loneliness as lack of solidarity, another thing. Political loneliness, that's another thing. Uh, loneliness of disabilities, that might be another thing. It's, it's underdeveloped, so I'm not sure that is, it is indeed a whole loneliness by itself. But I think once we get a good grasp of these kinds of loneliness, it would be we can de really delineate them into different kinds of loneliness. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. Um, second question. So um, you, you said just before that, you know, you were critical of the view, which, you know, has in fact, you know, been put forward by one, some, some of my previous guests on here that, you know, loneliness, yes, can be a bad thing, um, but it, it doesn't follow from that viewpoint that, you know, we should always try to make it go away. And the, the thought behind it is that, Look, you know, loneliness is a bit like grief and, you know, it would be crazy to say, let's just, you know, make grief go away because, you know, a big part of what it means to be human would go away and grief matters. And, you know, the important thing is to help people to grieve well rather than not grieve at all. And then, you know, that line of argument would go and loneliness is at least sometimes like that. It's like grieving. So it's not like depression, but it's like grief and that's different. But you wouldn't agree with that. No, I wouldn't agree with that. First of all, I, I, I see a difference between grief and loneliness. Mm -hmm. uh, so grief is a response to a very particular event, right? Uh, the kind of ill-being in response to a particular event. I would equate loneliness to sadness, maybe, right? So you can say, yeah, but part of being human is being sad. And no, I, I don't think so. I think if we could live in a world without sadness, that would have been a better world, right? So it's the same as saying, you know, being sick is part of being human. Yeah, of course it is, physiologically speaking, biologically speaking. But again, being living in a world where there is no sickness is, you know, by definition, a better world than what we have right now, where people die of disease, right? Or just feel bad because of disease. So again, I'm not talking about, you know, acute loneliness, you might call it. The loneliness that you feel after breaking up with your partner and it goes away after a month. I'm not talking, nobody cares about that kind of loneliness. I'm talking about chronic, persistent loneliness that affects your health and that affects your well-being. And again, goes against, uh, and we, we might discuss it further, but goes against your very sociality, right? Your very essence as a human being. I think that our obligation as ethicists, as clinicians, as public health experts, uh, as citizens who care about other citizens, we should do everything we can to mitigate and prevent that. 
yeah um let's talk a little bit so you said that you know you've been interested uh recently in the connection between loneliness or loneliness um as a result of a lack of solidarity that's intriguing um tell us tell us some more about that yeah so when you read the experiences you know and you read they're actually what they write and what they uh, say right uh, immigrants refugees uh, whether it's for climate or war or what have you they first of all they use the term loneliness right and even when they don't their account sounds very much like the experience of loneliness but they don't talk about it the same way as what we usually perceive as lonely. You know, we see in movies, we talk with our friends, we experience that, you know, is coming to the airport and not being picked up and not having someone taking care of you, making food for you, and not have, having someone to hug, right, to touch. You know, I, I, what I always describe is, what I always use is an account experience of a child uh, who escaped Latin America and came to the U.S., and he, you know, he came with his family, right? So it's not like he's lonely in that sense. And he, his problem and his, what makes him, you can say, sad uh, or, le or less well-off is his experiences on the bus. So he says, you know, when I go on the bus to go to school or coming back from school, what bothers me is that no one keeps the seat for me on the bus, right? You know, everybody has their friends and they all call each other and, and say, oh, come sit next to me. Nobody does that for me. And I have no seat on the bus, mm -hmm. right? And I think that goes beyond, or it's very different from the kind of loneliness that we usually think about. The kind of loneliness that they describe, or that child described, is the kind of, loneliness one feels when you have nobody to stand with you right think about the all the the you know the black Lives matters movement all these kind of movements they stand in solidarity with, with one another which is great but when they lack that solidarity from their surroundings it could be nationally it can be regionally it could be internationally they feel a kind of loneliness that is not captured by the common definition of loneliness. They feel like they stand alone. You know, in, in one uh, article on this, I used the, the notion of epistemic injustice. So you can explicate the notion of loneliness as lack of solidarity using because solidarity has a very specific meaning in bioethics. So, so it's kind of a two-level uh, model where first, um, you don't, solidarity is having someone to identify with and then someone to do something to assist you, right? Mm -hmm. So corresponding to the first level, you can use the term of epistemic injustice, whereas you are not believed or your listener doesn't give you a lot of credibility in what you are saying, therefore excluding you from the pool of knowledge, mm -hmm. of nowheres, okay? That kind of injustice, that kind of phenomenon makes you feel 
like there's no one to identify you, to empathize with you, to understand you. And that can cause the kind of loneliness that I'm talking about. The same thing goes to the second level, which is having someone to assist you. Think about, you know, all the refugees that are coming into Europe right now as we speak and are just left to die in the ocean. They might be understood, their plight, right? But they necessarily feel that there's no one there to stand with them, to stand for them. And I think if we ask them, and if we ask them properly using the right tools, they will describe the kind of loneliness that I'm referring to rather than the kind of loneliness that is commonly uh, referred to. Yeah. Thanks, Zohar. Um, that gives us a lot to think about. I tell you, this is going so quick. Um, our time is, the time is pretty much up, but I do want to end with, you know, the, the last question I always ask, or mostly ask. So loneliness, you know, is an intensely personal experience, right? Almost everybody, I think, you know, has, has experienced it in, in, in some way. Um, what about you? Does that inform your work or is this just something, you know, is, is, is your own experience of it? If any, is that completely separate? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, so my interest in loneliness rose from uh, both my personal and professional life. So I'm divorced. And after my divorce, I, you know, had to deal with a lot of loneliness. So, you know, my academic work is a way for me to channel that and to, to make that negative experience into something more productive. And professionally, you know, being an uh, emergency medicine clinician in Israel, I had, and this is even before COVID, um, I had cases where I had, where I discharged patients to go to their home, right? That's what everybody wants, allegedly. And they refuse to go home. And they refuse to go home because they had no home to go back to. They had the building, the physical building, the physical home, but they didn't have anybody in it or they didn't have anybody who they wanted to be in it, right? During COVID, it got worse, right? So I had patients committing suicide because their loved ones, their families stopped visiting them. I, got, I had patients who didn't want to be admitted, even though they were really, really sick, because they were afraid of the loneliness of the COVID world in the hospital. So that only you know, motivated me even further to focus on loneliness. And in fact, it's been very hard for me to focus on other areas of research other than loneliness for the past uh, two years or so. Yeah, it is a really fascinating topic, isn't it? I experience that too. You know, once you get into it, it's it's so rich and 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 it, it matters so much. And it's nevertheless really hard to say what it is, right? Um, so oh, that was great. Thank you so much. Our time's up. We'll have to leave it at that for today. Um, yeah, this was really illuminating, and uh, I look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you. My guest today was Zoha Lederman. Zohar is an emergency medicine physician who currently works as a researcher at the Medical Ethics and Humanities Unit at the Medical Faculty of Hong Kong University. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, a podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.